saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com. For all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 300. 300. It's a nice round number. 300. Episode 300. I'm just going to keep repeating 300. I know. It's, I feel like at some point we're going to have to stop putting numbers on there because it's probably daunting for people who are new to be like, ugh, so many episodes. I don't know. I follow podcasts. I think they always just keep putting them on. I, a lot of them do. I know. There's no rhyme. I just... Sometimes I'm like, oh, do you think if someone sees episode 304, they're going to be like, I'm oh, not starting this podcast. I don't know. Maybe our listeners can let us know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do do that. Anyway, happy episode 300. How are you doing today? I cut you off. How's it going? I'm good. We're officially one day away from my move. So. Yes. Yes, we are. Get excited for next week when I tell you I've moved in, and then that's, <laughs> that's the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, what are we doing today? Do you remember what we're doing today? Yes, we... <laughs> That was so sassy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to Especially do that. Especially because we... Doesn't matter. No peek behind the curve for this one. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so dumb of me. I'm sorry. So we got to chat with Madeline Miller. Yes, we did. All about theater. Yes. Because I, for once, made good on a promise <laughs> <laughs> that I said I would bring her back to talk about theater, and she said, literally, anytime you want. Yeah. And anytime you like, we talk to these best-selling authors, in my mind, they're just crazy busy, and like obviously they are, but she's also like, yeah, it's a phone call. I would love to. It'd be yeah. so much fun. Uh, so we did that. I think back in December we... I think so. Uh, so, yeah, talk about her favorite shows and her love of mythology and all sorts of stuff. And she teaches Shakespeare. And um, I think you and I gave her a bunch of product, like musical suggestions. We did. Because she was... <laughs> I think she was overwhelmed. I think she was. Because I, I like partway through the conversation, I was like, oh, you do like stage plays. Yeah. Not musicals. <laughs> yeah. She's like, yeah, I love theater. And we're both like, let me tell you about cats. And it's like... <laughs> She's like, yeah, okay, I haven't seen that. We're like, okay, what about something rotten? And she's like, I don't think you understand. I really don't. I haven't seen many musicals. She was a good sport, though. Yeah, she's great. She's really, really fun. Um, also, we're doing a, f- a really fun giveaway. We are doing a fun giveaway. Do you want to talk about it or you want me to? You can talk about it. Okay, so to celebrate episode 300, Jill and I are giving away a whole bunch of free books to you guys. Uh, as you probably have noticed, since we always talk about advanced reader copies of books, uh, we get copies of books early from publishers so that we can prepare for interviews or just they want us to review them so we can share the good word. It's, you know, it's a pretty obvious structure. They send people who have a following uh, in the literary world, they send them books and then those people talk about those books and then people go out and buy and borrow those books. Um, but when once you've read these books, you can't give them to a library. You can't give them to like, you can't donate them to like half price books or really like you're not supposed to even give them to like book banks or anything like that. So we just get stacks and stacks of these advanced reader copies. Many of them turn into like mini gifts for our family and things, but we want to give some of them to you. So Jill and I are both going to curate a box of like, I think we said like 10 books Mm -hmm. that we've enjoyed. Either they might be yet to be released books. They might be previously released books, but we're going to give two away. So in order to win a box from either Jill or I of books that we love, uh, just go to our Instagram page, 
follow us on Instagram at ProBookNerds. And the post that will be up today is going to be all about this. So you just have to like that post and then tag three people to be entered to win. And then we will randomly select a, uh, a winner later in the week. Um, probably well, this is coming out Thursday, probably like Monday, I would mm-hmm. assume, to give people some time. So go to our Instagram, like that post, follow us, and then tag three people to do the same. And you have a chance to win some awesome free books from Jill and I. Oh, and something you said uh, yesterday about this. It will be obvious that many of these books have been read because we are giving you books that we really loved. Mm-hmm. So um, the pages won't be like torn around, torn around or creased or anything like right, that. But, but there may be some like broken spines yeah. or not perfect pages. Right. And the reason being that Jill and I want to give you guys books that the two of us really enjoyed. So it will right. be clear that we read them. So maybe good, we'll put like a, a note. Maybe we'll put like a note in them or something. <gasps> Yeah. Kind of little, like handwritten notes. Yeah, like those like you know how like Neil Gaiman and a bunch of authors always go like mystery sign all the books that they put out. Oh, maybe we can get the, we do have signed copies of some books. I might put in some signed copies of oh, some yeah. of the books I have. We'll see. It'll be a secret. We'll see. So yes, follow us on Instagram at ProBookNerds for a chance to win those. Um other things you think people should know about for episode three hundred? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Go do our reading challenge. That's at our website at professionalbooknerds.com. Um Okay, well, I hope you guys enjoy this 300th episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast with Madeline Miller. Hey everyone, it's Adam and Jill again, and we are joined once again by our new friend Madeline Miller, who, if you've been listening to some of our recent episodes, was on back in episode 278, talking about her most recent book, Circe. She's also the best-selling author of The Song of Achilles. Uh, Her books are awesome. They're all about mythology, and maybe we'll get into a little bit of that today, but... uh, at the very end of our interview about Circe, you told me that you teach Shakespeare, and all of a sudden, all I wanted to do was <laughs> talk about theater. So, right after we got done recording, I emailed you, and I was like, seriously, if you want to come back on and talk about theater things, you're always welcome. So, that is what we're going to do today. So, first off, hello, and thanks for coming back. Oh, hello, and thank you so much for having me. I love talking about theater, so this is this is fabulous. <laughs> I, like for listeners, I'm not kidding. As soon as we stopped recording, I like went to my normal guy voice and was like, "No, but actually, <laughs> I w- I wish we had like another hour to talk about that." And you graciously said, "Anytime you want." So, well, we before we talk theater, we can talk books so people don't yell at us, um, and then we'll dive into all sorts of theater saying things. So, um, I guess just first, are there any books you've been reading recently that you really enjoyed? Yes, um, I just finished Pachinko. Uh, by Min Jin Lee, which blew me away. I was expecting it, you know, so I, I'm going to confess something, which is that sometimes when I see the, like, three generations of a family, I start, I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And so, but I, I overcame, I had so many people send the book to me that I was like, okay, I'm just going to read it, and I'm not going to think about the description. Um, and it's, it's brilliant. It just sucks you right in from the first page. And it's about, it's this just incredible story of this family in incredibly adverse circumstances and it was something I knew nothing about which is the Korean community in Japan um and sort of what they suffered there and it was it's brilliant (laughs) I have millions of thoughts on Pachinko so I I don't know if you know this but actually way before the book came out 
oh my god like last january yeah, it was a while ago at this point um i got to interview men in person oh. at one of the events at one of the alas or something and she was just the best human being. She was so wonderful. I've recently, I've got, I like since then, I've gotten actually become like friends with her. And she, that book is absolutely ridiculously good. And she yeah. is just the best person. Oh well, I so I was very fortunate to get to be um, at a literary festival with her, so I got to meet her too. And I completely agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Just like she's just one of those humans who has like the warmest like soul and all you want to do is just hang out with her for hours and hours. Yes. Yes. Um, are there, are there other books you've been reading that you enjoy? I didn't mean to cut you off, but I figure I always, anytime someone says Pachinko, I have to like throw in my two cents of how much I enjoy her. No, no, please, please do. Um, I, I am, I also just finished The Mere Wife, which I thought was terrific. Um, it's a retelling of, uh, sort of a, a modernized retelling of the Beowulf story. Oh. And um, I'm shocked that she and I haven't been on a bunch of panels together uh, because I think we're dealing with a lot of similar themes in Cersei and, and in this novel, but it's it's wonderful. And it's just really, um, it's a really smart and interesting and subversive take on Beowulf. We have a lot of Beowulf fans here in the office, so I'm going to have to find out if anyone's read that book because if not, they will probably like it. <laughs> yes, and and if you want to taste, uh, Ron Charles, the editor of the Washington Post, has a totally hit video on it, so you can see his kind of funny little two minute video about it. <laughs> Who is the author of that one? Um, it's his last name is Headley. No, I'm totally blanking. That's okay. That's okay. We can look here. it up. <laughs> yeah, we can we can look <laughs> it up. I pick on the spot. Yeah, Maria Headley. There we go. Ooh, Maria a- Devana Headley. Yeah, you make a really good point. I'm surprised you guys haven't been yeah, on panels really. together as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, um, so that's another great one. Do you? I actually. Does that happen a lot for you when you're on a panel with someone? Like, do you find yourself? And I know we talked last time about how obviously you are very well versed in mythology and things. But like, do you? Do you end up after you do panels a lot of times, like reading the books of people if you haven't read them yet? Once you meet them. Yes, I do. I mean, I try and I, whenever I'm going to be on a panel with someone, I try and always have read the book, their book first. Um, but if I don't manage it, then almost always I will, I will read it after. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like a, it's kind of like us having librarians all around for mm-hmm. book recommendations. It's, yep. like a, it's like a nice way to get book recommendations. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And then you get to hear them talk a little bit about their book. And... Um, okay, so... We've got some book recommendations. People shouldn't yell at us now via email or Twitter, things like that. So now I want to talk about theater. So as we, uh, I feel like um, I'm picking up like a, a show, like a previously on Professional Book mm-hmm. Nerds. When we last left, you kind of briefly mentioned that you teach Shakespeare, correct? Mm-hmm. So can you yeah. kind of, how did you get started doing that? So it was, it was a very weird uh, journey, actually, because I... Um, initially came to Shakespeare kind of in this very strange way, which is the senior, my senior year of college, a good friend of mine who had been with the kind of um, college Shakespeare group all four years was going to direct Troilus and Cressida, but he knew absolutely nothing about the ancient world, and Troilus and Cressida is, you know, Shakespeare's version of the Iliad. And so he asked me as a classicist to sort of be his co-director and to talk about um, and, and to sort of work on the Iliad parts and, and talk him through all that and, and sort of bring my insight into the Iliad into Troilus and Cressida. 
Um, and I just love, I completely fell in love with the play. I fell in love with the directing process. <laughs> I fell in love with um, all of it. And when that was over, I actually, not only did that send me into this huge Shakespeare directing, teaching, you know, wonderful path, but also it's what sparked me to write Song of Achilles. Hmm. Um, because I had never really thought that I could sort of get my hands into the stories and be part of shaping the story myself. And then working on Troilus and Cressida and sort of shaping the story that way helped me feel like I could actually write about this um, and I could tell my own story about it. So, so side note, it led to Song of Achilles, but um, <laughs> it also, it was just, it was intellectually engaging and exciting in a way that was unlike anything else I had ever done. And so I, I kind of threw myself into Shakespeare. I did sort of a self-taught <laughs> course <laughs> on Shakespeare, basically. Um, I, I took some, some courses in graduate school. I audited some courses in graduate school. Uh, but my degree was in classics. So, you know, it was all sort of, it was all happening on the side. <laughs> um, I read, you know, all the Shakespeare plays. And then I got a job teaching. And I wanted to continue directing plays. And so I ended up founding a... Um, a Shakespeare program at my school and I ended up then running it for for seven years and it was just so exciting to to work with these plays and with teenagers in particular with the plays because I, I feel like they connected so much to the emotions and the psychology um so yeah so then that happened and then I ended up going back to graduate school uh, at Yale School of Drama and you know studying it a little bit more formally there which was nice <laughs> So it's all been kind of like a, a big mishmash, but, you know, I I mean, the good news is you have I, great libraries, and so I, you know, went and read all the commentaries on Shakespeare that I could possibly find, and it's kind of, kind of self-taught, mostly. I love that you just kind of, like, throw out you went to Yale drama school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A bit. A bit casually. Yeah, you studied it a yeah. bit more formally at, like, the place to study drama. <laughs> Well, it was, it was, it was wonderful. And I was in the dramaturgy department. Um, and, uh, so that was really interesting to, to kind of come at it from not so much from directing, but from a dramaturgical perspective, which was great too. That's so interesting. I, you mentioned something, um, about how, you know, getting into the world of, of Shakespeare and, and starting to co-direct led to the Song of Achilles. And I've never really thought about this before, but do you see any parallels into like how you were writing stage direction and how you write your books? Um, that's a really good question. I uh, maybe I think the I absolutely think that so much of what I know about storytelling actually came from practicing by directing all these plays. That you know, the, the way you sort of make scenes tight and the way you put in pauses and breaks and um, sort of the, the rising drumbeat of action, all that stuff, I feel like when you're directing a play, you get to practice it um, over and over and over again and rehearse it and rehearse it. So all that stuff went in, definitely. Um, and I think in particular, the idea that, you know, when you're directing a Shakespeare play, you also are you know, telling a story that a lot of people might know the ending to. You know, when you're directing Hamlet, for instance, <laughs> a lot of people know how it's going to end. <laughs> Not well. Um, and Spoiler alert. <laughs> that pretty much sums up all of the, the dramas. Like. Yeah. 
How do they end? Not well. Right. right, not well. Exactly. And so so the key is, you know, trying to make that journey feel new and exciting so that when you get to the ending, you know, you're saying, Don't drink from the cup and you know, the audience is hopefully on the on the end of on the edge of their seats. And so I think that really had a direct transfer onto the Song of Achilles. because um, a lot of people know how that how that ends. And, you know, Again, not well. Yeah. And so, <laughs> telling the story, um, practicing how to how to make that arc that it's the journey that's important, and then the ending has to sort of feel surprising, even though you already know what's going to happen. Um, I feel like I got to practice that a lot, and I do. I do definitely imagine the scene um, when I'm writing. I sort of feel like I'm I'm in the scene. It's all around me. I'm seeing it as if it's happening very 3D. Um, I write in a completely dark room, <laughs> so I can kind of imagine it better. Makes you sound like I put this hood over my head. I, it's very strange. Whenever people see me writing, <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I know this looks really <laughs> not good. Um, but now that you mentioned, I think I think partially I, that dark room really helps me to visualize it, so I can kind of see the characters moving around and see the scene and how they're interacting with it. That is super interesting. That also, is, yeah. I want your next book, like the tagline, just to be like, it does not end well. <laughs> like, oh, man. Um, so when, as a, a theater person, do you almost kind of exclusively stick in the realm of Shakespeare, or do you venture out and go see other plays or direct other plays, or do you just kind of stay in the bard's world as it would be? Um, mostly for directing, I stay, I stay with Shakespeare, and I think, I, I don't really know why that is, um, it's just those are the, the places I feel really drawn, drawn to working with, but in terms of going to, to theater as an audience member, I love to go to all different kinds of shows, um, I, and, and, you know, experimental shows, and, um, th- that was wonderful when I was at Yale School of Drama, because of course there was such interesting stuff there, and then afterwards we moved to Cambridge, and my husband um, was working as a stage carpenter at the American Repertory Theater, and so we got to see all his shows that he had sort of worked on the sets for, um, and they were just wonderful. You know, that was, they did the Porgy and Bess revival there. Um, they did a really interesting Tempest. They did all kinds of, of interesting stuff. So basically, you know, I love to kind of support um, the theaters in the area and just see whatever, uh, whatever is out there. And... Yeah, I, I love a very diverse theater experience. I will regretfully say, poor. I am not a Gershwin fan. Porgy and Bess, <laughs> to me, I don't. I just feel like there's a certain type of musical I'm not a huge fan of. And I remember going to see that with my wife and our, our some of my friends. We have um, like season passes to Cleveland's Playhouse Square. We have this really big theater district here, so we get wonderful shows. And that came mm. in one of the seasons. And we saw it, and I just remember, like, we all laughed, being like, ah, that is just not for us. And then I went back, and I told my mom, and she's like, I love Porgy and Bess. <laughs> I was like, okay, different you times. Know, yeah, well, and that's it. I wouldn't say that I loved it. I mean, I wouldn't say that I loved the, you know, I, I, I was really glad I went because I thought it was really interesting, particularly as a piece of American history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't always, when I see them, I'm not always sort of watching them with my pure appreciation. <laughs> Sometimes I'm watching them with, you know, wow, how does this fit into the cultural moment? Mm-hmm. Why why this play? I'm always really interested in why theaters choose the plays that they choose um, and what, what they're hoping to speak to. 
with them and, and sort of how they're trying to reclaim them or, or not. Um, so, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's a complicated. <laughs> I've got complicated feelings about it. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing with um, we recently saw um, an American in Paris. Mm-hmm. And mm. it's kind of the same thing. It, it wasn't for the same reasons, but like a lot of the interactions between men and women in that are very of the time. And mm-hmm. like you said, mm-hmm. I, 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 the, I theater does a wonderful job of showing you what society was like at the time when, you know, a, a particular play was written. But that one, it was just, it was almost too much. Like the way that the men were talking to the women, I was like, oh, this could have used some rewrites. But I, I think that's actually brings up an interesting point about Shakespeare in particular in that I don't want to say it's timeless because that sounds cliched, but it really is. I mean, you, yeah. and it happens where people adapt Shakespeare plays into any particular time they could possibly want, which I think is interesting because I think mm-hmm. there's very few other writers who have given you a catalog that allows you to do that. Yes, I totally, I totally agree. And I, I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. There was a, um, the Pig Iron Company here in, in Philadelphia, where I am, had done this production for the Philadelphia Fringe Festival maybe 10 years ago now. Um, but it was, they did measure for measure. They set it in a morgue. Most of the characters were sort of played by animated corpses. Um, or, you know, so it's kind of you get the Duke as animated corpse Duke. And it was so strange and so effective. I, I could, I was shocked. You know, that sort of you read the description, you're like, wow, this is going to be really weird, but it's not going to work. Um, but it, it really did work. And so I love that, that Shakespeare also has this flexibility where you can, you can do something really outside the box um, and, and still, you know, and if you have a strong vision, you can kind of make that connection and, and the play can still, you can still learn something new about the play. Um, so I, and I totally agree. I think that, you know, for me, Shakespeare is, that is what I love about it is how timeless it is and how these, you know, these stories can speak across the centuries. King Lear, you know, now mm-hmm. we're sort of, there's a lot of talk today about narcissism and um, <clears throat> that kind of stuff. And, and here is King Lear, you know, who no one ever told him no for 80 years. And then when someone did, it was a, a disaster. <laughs> um, <laughs> And speaking of another play that does not end well, and uh, but you know he is able. He's sort of the journey of him, of him coming back from that is so interesting. And um, one of the things I love about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is constantly asking, "Can you be a good leader and a good person? Mm. Um, are those two things mutually exclusive?" And oftentimes he seems to come up with the answer, "Yes." <laughs> Uh, although, you know, I think there are a few exceptions, but he seems to be really interested in the moral compromises that you have to make to be a leader, to be an effective leader. Um, and, you know, how much do those corrupt you and how much? So I, all, those, all those parts of Shakespeare, I feel like, are just not only timeless, but so present with us right now. I'm, I have to ask, do you ever do any of the comedies or is it only, <laughs> is it only the dramas? Um, I do, I do, and I love the comedies. Twelfth Night is one of my absolute favorites. Also, there's some darkness in Twelfth Night also. Um, but I, I absolutely love Twelfth Night. You know, you have uh, Antonio, maybe one of my favorite characters in the Shakespeare canon. He's the, the you know, pirate in love. 
um, with uh, with Sebastian, who falls in love with Sebastian. And he's what I love about it is he's you know a very um, I mean he, he's basically a, a gay character, and but he's presented as completely positive, dashing, heroic. Um, you know that he's not sort of made a a uh, pathetic figure, a figure of last in any way. He's this, you know, in some ways one of the most heroic characters in the play. He does have sort of a sad, sad end to his story. But um, so I, I love him. I love Viola. She's maybe one of my mm. favorite, my favorite heroines. And uh, let's see, what other comedies? I mean, I, As You Like It is wonderful. Um, and all of them, really. I mean, I, I, there are so many that I love. There are very few Shakespeare plays that I don't have some love for. And part of what I love is all the comedy in some of the tragedy. I mean, King Lear is an incredibly funny play within all that darkness. <laughs> and I love how they can sit, that can sit together. And Henry the Fourth, Part One, um, which is the, the play where Falstaff gets introduced, is also, you know, it's history, theoretically, but it is so funny <laughs> all the way through. I have to, th- this is apropos of nothing, but I, and I was thinking about this when we were talking about uh, Circe as well, but the, just your encyclopedic knowledge of all of the characters and plays, like, th- it is so impressive that you're, I, cause I know you're just pulling this off the top of your head, like, that is amazing to me. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Well, when you, when you've directed them, you know, you have to kind of really live inside the world and, um, so it's just it's just years of experience. It's <laughs> just years of doing it. <laughs> it's not it's not a, a yeah. So, are there um, any that you haven't yet had a chance to direct that you would like to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would love to direct a full production of Two Noble Kinsmen, which is um, a really interesting play that I think doesn't get read very much. But there is. You know, there's a lot of homoeroticism with men in Shakespeare, but there is a, a relationship between two women that sort of implies a, a romantic relationship um, that I would love to explore um, in that play. And so I think I think that would be that would be interesting. And it's a, it's a difficult play because it's very formal, and there's sort of these moments where you know you you've kind of gone into like tableau and very this very non-psychological, non-realistic um, mode, but I, I think it would be really, it would be really interesting. I think I asked you this last time, so I'm sorry if I did, I don't remember for sure. I think we were joking about it when we did our Nerd 9 questions, but do you think Shakespeare is one pe- one person or multiple people? <laughs> Good question. Um, I, so... I'm going to preface this by saying that I don't think Homer was one person. <laughs> um, I think Homer was, you know, a lot of a lot of oral tradition, and then Homer was the name that that people gave him. Um, I I think that Shakespeare was one person, um, and I don't, you know, I know that there are lots of theories that it was the Earl of Oxford and all kinds of other people. Um, possibly a woman. I'm I'm not going to get into all that because I feel like, you know, to me, what I see though is one brain shaping all of this. Um, and I, I think if you you know working deeply with the plays, you can just see that it's it's the same themes, it's the same interests. Sometimes it's the same recycled jokes, but also, <laughs> you know, it's the it's the same. It, it 
really, it feels like the same person doing all of these things and exploring these things. And, and so many of the plays come in, you know, interesting pairs. I feel like Timon of Athens, which is all about ingratitude, is sort of this, like, weird pairing with Lear. And, you know, Hamlet deals with so many of the same things in Troilus and Cressida. So it's sort of like he wrote Hamlet and there was, like, something left over. So then he wrote Troilus and Cressida with that same emotion about kind of women's faithlessness and, you know, feeling alienated from the world and disillusioned with the world. And so I, I feel like all these, there's so many connections that it, to me, it has to be one person. I have a book pitch for you, just hearing you talk. <laughs> so, yeah. okay, so recently, and by recently, I mean, like, at some point this year, because time flies um i interviewed matthew pearl and he wrote uh the dante chamber and the dante club and all of his books are these historical fiction novels where he brings in real life uh novelists and people who actually existed and he tells these like thriller type stories about them and they're really really interesting i would love with all of your knowledge of and thoughts on shakespeare as a person i would love like a historical fiction version of shakespeare like told through your voice because I'm just sitting here being like, I would love to take a class from Madeline. So like, <laughs> I just, I'm sure you're working on many, many things, but just you can take this and run with it. I don't even need any royalties or any love. Just it just feels like a perfect thing for you. Well, thank you, thank you. That's very, that's very kind. I, I, I don't know if I would ever do historical fiction, but, uh, but definitely I would. I, I'm thinking about the Tempest as a possible. As, as sort of a possible book, so we'll see. We'll see if that if that ever happens. Um, but I but Shakespeare the Man was so interesting too because one of the things that I, I he was he was also very self taught. That you know his his plays are so um, grounded in knowledge and literary knowledge, but also not he gets all this stuff wrong. You know his geography of Italy is completely skewed. <laughs> you know, he, he really clearly has no idea what Italy is actually, <laughs> like how that geography works at all. And so I, it's, it's the sort of education I think that you would get if, if you were self, if you were this incredibly intelligent person who was self-taught um, and who was working with the books that they could find and, and the books that they could get. But, you know, and I think for me, that's an argument that he is not the Earl of Oxford um, or, or whoever, whatever aristocrat because he didn't have that kind of, he didn't have those kind of resources. Um, you know, that he, he was working from a, a different class, which I think is, is also really interesting. That's a, that's interesting. I mean, that's a good way of sort of really deeping dive into figuring out if Shakespeare's one person or two. Yeah, you basically deconstructed my argument that he's multiple people within like five minutes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, see, you didn't reveal that, that you think that. Oh, I, I think it's more so me being, you know, when you see someone who has created a, a just wealth of work that is routinely phenomenal in any field, and you're just like, that can't be the work of one person. I think this is more just jealousy of his sheer, like, capacity to create characters and things. So it's just more jealousy than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. There's, there's a, a famous, there's, um, Tom Lehrer uh, has this bit he he does about the the singer um, has this bit about uh, Mozart. He's like it's sobering to think that when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for three years. <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> oh my God. So I hear you. I hear you. It is sort of like how did he do it? But um, to be you know to be totally honest, you know they're not. I mean, 
I have a lot of affection for Titus Andronicus, but you know, some of these plays are, are not, um, they're not all King Lear. <laughs> you know, he, he was clearly working things out. He was growing as an artist. <laughs> they're not all perfect. Um, and you know, and I, I love that too. I love, I love sort of seeing him start with an idea in an early play and then, and then kind of keep working it and working it and growing as an artist until it, until it becomes something like King Lear or Othello. That's really point. Um, have you ever seen the musical Something Rotten? No, I haven't. I haven't, and I want to. Tell me about it. Have uh, you seen it? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Jill, did you see this? I have yeah. not. Okay, but so... I'm familiar with it. Yeah, so Something Rotten is the story of a guy who is in the world... It's almost like the Monty Python movie Life of Brian, which I feel like I have to mention like once a month. Um, <laughs> but it's the story of this guy who is also a playwright in the time of Shakespeare, and he has this brother who writes these incredibly wonderful stories and there's a lot of thought in the these two that Shakespeare's actually stealing their work and so he goes on this basically almost like a vision quest type of a thing and comes up with um he meets this person who is kind of like a soothsayer who tells him you know, the the real way to, to one-up Shakespeare and all of his comedies and dramas is to write a musical. And so he, they do this, this number, it's called, it's a musical, and they go through, they reference like 50 different musicals in this seven-minute number. It's the best musical number I've ever seen in a show, but then he, what he ends up writing is this musical called Omelette. And, <laughs> and the whole thing is just, chock full of reference like you don't need to know anything about Shakespeare to go see something rotten but for someone as in the world as you are I feel like you would appreciate all of these like wink wink and nods into all of these various things that happens and like the funny thing is the, sh- the person who they have at playing Shakespeare like not only is he a genius but he's also like the tall dark and handsome guy who's really cocky and like he wears these just absurd uh collars that like go like above his head like the whole thing they basically make him like um, Captain Hook in that Once Upon a Time show that was on ABC, like just impossibly attractive, like all these things. But it's so funny. We went in not really knowing a whole lot of stuff about the musical. And I'm just, honestly, I honestly was kind of glad we did it because it's so funny. And I feel like it's right up your alley. Well, thank you. That makes it sound absolutely amazing. And I definitely, definitely want to see it. It's, it's like right... At the very beginning, they do this song called Welcome to the Renaissance. And, like, we didn't know how funny it was supposed to be. And, like, this first this first song, it just breaks down, like, how the Renaissance, yeah, it was great. But also, like, it was kind of still, like, <laughs> they still had lots of sicknesses. And, like, it wasn't the, like, the golden age of life that everyone makes it out to be. There was still a lot of suffering. And it's just, oh, it's so funny. I feel like you would absolutely love it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. I'm going to see if I can find it. Yeah. So, unadjacent to Shakespeare, like, what are some of the other just like musicals or plays or things that you have been a fan of, or even a few that you want to see that you haven't yet? Mm, well, first of all, I have to confess that I have not seen Hamilton, and I'm just in despair about it, and I really want to see it. So, it comes <laughs> to Philadelphia. Um, next year, and I'm just I'm I'm gonna find some way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I, w- I would love to see it. Uh, and let's see what else. Um, I really uh, I really enjoyed um, the Pillow Man. I don't I don't love all of Martin McDonough's work, but 
um, a, a good production of The Pillow Man is really, really disturbing and great and funny. And he has that mix of sort of dark humor and um, and just straight up, you know, horrifying darkness <laughs> that is is really is really interesting to me. Um, I like uh, the work of Martina Mayock, um, who, or maybe it's Majok, maybe mm-hmm. it's Majok. Um, she she won the uh, the Pulitzer this last year, but she is doing um, really interesting stuff sort of about about class and and immigrants. Um, and let's see what else. Um, I mean, I love Tennessee Williams. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of I read a lot of Tennessee Williams when I was a teenager. Um, I would just, like, pick up the plays and read it like a book. So that counts as a book recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I hadn't even seen the plays. I just I just had read them. Uh-huh. And I and I loved them on the page so much. And then getting to see um, good performances. There was one at the ART of the Glass Menagerie that was really, um, really interesting and, and good that I, I really liked. Um, let's see. What other good ones? What other? Now I'm, I'm blanking on all my... <laughs> Favorite place. Um, I mean, I, I love. I like to see um, re sort of redos of, of some ancient works. I like um, Anne Carson's Antigonic, which is a really sort of kind of update on on Antigone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like I like to see people also working with the ancient ancient. You know, more coming out of my background there. I don't know. Give, give me some recommendations. What do you guys? Oh <laughs> man. Okay. So we're both musical people. Um, okay. Not, I, know I haven't been naming musicals. No, that, that's no, okay. No, no, that's okay. Not talent-wise. Well, let me... Joe can sing. I cannot. Um, but <laughs> oh, Hamilton... I will say Hamilton is absolutely ridiculously incredible. It came to Cleveland when we got to see it. Um, I was thinking... I'm trying to think. There's a play called... I think it's called People. or P, And um, it's a... It was here last winter. And it's a family in a New York City apartment who is having a Thanksgiving meal and the daughter is hosting it for the first time and it's pretty dark like it's funny but you can tell that there's things going on with the family where there's maybe someone had some uh they they there's some infidelity going on in the family and there's a lot of stress between the siblings and the parents and all sorts of different stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that it's shot, it's technically all one scene, but you're looking at the apartment. It's a two level apartment and you're kind of like looking at it so, like, like you would cut the side of the building off. So you can see them walking upstairs and you can see the upstairs rooms and the downstairs rooms at the same time. And there's people doing different things at different times in every room. And it's really, it, I'm not going to give away the ending, but it, it, uh, you, you might like it because it does not end well. <laughs> Um, but that's really, really good. Uh, from a musical standpoint, we both love Les Mis. Mm-hmm. Um, what else has come recently though? Like I said, Something Rotten was wonderful. Uh, Joseph and the Amazing Tankcoat Dreamcoat is one that I always yeah. love. Um, I feel like we were just recently talking about Into the Woods. We were just talking about, yeah. No, I, I, I love, I should have said Sondheim. I love Sondheim. Oh, yeah. Pretty much anything yeah. Sondheim. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I could just name every Sondheim. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing I like about Into the Woods as well, and that's it's literary too, it's all the fairy tales, but I like that you can see so many different versions of it. Jill and I were talking about this before we recorded, I think, the other day, but um, we saw a really stripped down version of Into the Woods here in Cleveland where they didn't have anything going on on the set it was very much like theater of the theater of the mind kind of a thing but then you can see mm-hmm. versions of it where they have like the grandiose stage and costumes and all that kind of stuff so 
Yeah. Love Into the Woods. Um, Pippin, there's a new version. Um, with that. That's that's really great. I'm going to let you talk, Joe. I'm just... I can't... My brain has, like, stopped working. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what well, musicals I, do I like? I can't remember <laughs> any of them. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you guys, because I absolutely love this show, speaking of musicals, but do you guys, either of you watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? My no. wife is obsessed with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, so oh I think God. I've heard every song. Yeah, so, so if you... I mean, if you like musicals, I think it is brilliant what they do with songs, and, you know, they're, they're two, sometimes three musical numbers per episode, um, and some of them are just really extraordinary and wonderful and perfect and, and edgy, and they advance the characterization of the characters, and um, so I, I love that show, and I think it's, not to mention the show is taking on, you know, they have this very light, kind of making it look effortless comedy, but they're also tackling really important issues about, you know, mental health mm-hmm. and mental illness and alcoholism and um, friendship and just all these, they're really like not unflinching, I would just, I would say. Um, and then they have these amazing musical numbers that are often incredibly funny. <laughs> you absolutely, you nailed it. Because I remember watching my wife watch the first season and she's like, this show is, is so good, you have to check it out. And then I would see her watching some episodes and she'd be like sobbing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I thought this was a comedy. And she, and <laughs> they do. They, they, I really love when shows take risks like that and they, they're not afraid to kind of, pivot away from what you expect that's yeah it's a really good show and the, and the musical numbers are just ridiculously good. well i need a new tv show so <laughs> there you go yeah this was i highly recommend <laughs> that um but yeah i i i'm really excited to see dear evan hansen that's coming this year oh, yeah that is um I have, yeah we have tickets for school of rock i'm excited to see that one yeah school of rock um i love all the disney ones aladdin is was really fun oh yeah well, I was just I was just talking to my mom the other day that I guess the first show I ever saw in on on the stage was The King and I, um, and I, my, I think my mom took me when I was five or something. And apparently, in her telling of the story, I was just like completely mesmerized the entire time, <laughs> like, leaning forward as far in my seat as I could <laughs> to try and get closer to the stage. So, so uh, I guess musicals were where it all began. Actually, I mm-hmm. should give. I should give all credit to musicals and, and The King and I. <laughs> I feel like The King and I might be coming here to Cleveland in, like, January, actually. Maybe. We, I don't know. Um, so we've told this to on the podcast before of people, but I don't know if you know, but Cleveland, we actually have, outside of New York City, Cleveland has the largest theater district in the country. Um, yeah. So because of that, our Playhouse Square, we have this Broadway series, which is what my wife and I and all of my, some of my friends have had season tickets for for, like, eight years now. And we, we get... It's usually somewhere between six and eight broad shows that were on Broadway that are now traveling around, which is why we had Hamilton, mm-hmm. why we're getting Dear Evan Hansen, and um, I think we're going to get Frozen. Frozen's coming. Yeah, for us, speaking of Disney. <laughs> so that'll come eventually. But yeah, it's um, if you are ever on a book tour and heading to Cleveland, let us know because we can find which plays are there at that moment for you. Oh, thank you. That would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. That would be wonderful. And I will say, um, one thing I like about Northeast Ohio is we have a lot of regional theaters mm-hmm. around. I mean, there's a lot, which is really fun. And We have a Great Lakes, our Great Lakes, uh, I think it's a Shakespeare, the Great Lakes Shakespeare Theater Company, I think. Great, Yeah, Great Lakes has a lot of Shakespeare, and then there's the, um, in the summertime, there's the uh, Cleveland Shakespeare Company, I think, mm-hmm. where they do... I think they usually choose two plays. I think it's usually a tragedy and a comedy. 
and they just sort of do outdoor performances all around the city. Um, so I've seen a couple shows that way, which is really a fun way to do it um, outside and it's very bare minimum set. It's it's a lot of fun. Maybe they need a maybe they need an outside director to come. <laughs> Listen, I would do it. We we always did one of our shows a year outside. I love I love doing outdoor theater. So um, so I would love that. <laughs> All right, listen, we because we are from Cleveland and we have connections to you now. I feel like we <laughs> feel like we need to be the linchpin to make this happen. <laughs> well, I would love it, and I you know I I love. I mean, I am such a you know. Broadway is wonderful, but I I love regional theaters because I feel like lots of times the the work that's being done in regional theaters is is really interesting and really smart, and you have incredibly talented people there, and so you know I I much more often am going to um, to regional theater shows and to sort of seeing seeing what's out there. There's some wonderful theaters in the Philadelphia area too, the Arden and the Wilma. Um, and and others and so i i love that whole kind of smaller but incredibly interesting theater theater scene yeah we have a couple of our the smaller um theater the, the smaller theaters in our, our playhouse district they always do every year one of the things that my wife and i always go to is the nutcracker because uh-huh. there's a cleveland oh, yeah. ballet that they always do that and it is it's really it's so cool to see it, I mean, there's a stripped down because they, they have to be. It's not they don't have the budget to do a big play. Right. But it is really cool to see the production, those types of productions on a much smaller scale. I completely agree. It's it's nice to see the the huge things, but also those those little ones are a breath of fresh air. Yeah, so. yeah, and you know, particularly with some plays, I mean, that's I I just went and saw the Nutcracker myself at a very uh, at, at the Upper Darby Performing Arts Center, which is you know uh, a very small kind of high school based <laughs> group. <laughs> Um, which was the right speed for my four-year-old, my two-year-old. Um, <laughs> and then I take a price for taking two people who probably were going to want to leave halfway through. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but one of the things that that I love also about kind of smaller theaters is that because they don't have have the budget, I feel like oftentimes they are making really creative, interesting choices. And the truth is, for Shakespeare, you don't really need. I mean, sometimes it's great to have the bells and whistles, but you don't really need that, that the plays are designed to completely create the scene with very minimal mm-hmm. um, stage setting and, you know, stage dressing, very minimal props. And um, and they really work that way. They really shine that way. And so I, I like to see them sometimes where, you know, the all the work has been spent on creating the story of the play and the world of the play with words, not necessarily with, you know, huge, elaborate um, set pieces, as cool as, as those can be. Yeah, that is, that's really true. I feel like you were about to say that. I, I was, I was, because I, yeah, like I said, when I have seen sh- shows of the, the Cleveland Shakespeare um, stuff does here in Cleveland, because I do it all over the city and the locations are different every time, I mean, they basically have like four boxes that they just sort of fit together in different ways. They're chairs or it's a bar or it's a bed. I mean, like when I saw Othello, I think the same four boxes just kind of were <laughs> yeah. manipulated yeah. in different ways to set the scene and it worked really well. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think that is so that that helps, you know, keep the focus on the on the psychology of the story, which is um which is brilliant. That's so cool. I love that. Just four mm-hmm. boxes. I I'm I'm pretty sure that's all it was, was just four boxes. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, that's not something you could do with like wicked. That's no. Like... Right. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, but yeah, because they, I mean, every place they go is very different. And so the scene 
you know, everything is just, they have to adapt to the setting because some of them are, um, I mean, I've seen it, there is an outdoor stage um, in Lakewood where I live, and so I've seen plays there. Other times it's in a park where they use the gazebo, and so, like, they have to be able to adapt to every situation and where the the play is that weekend. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And that's part of what I love about outdoor theater is you just sort of have to, you have to roll with it. And I think there's there's an energy and an excitement that comes from that that really fires up the play. Unfortunately, we both live in places where that outside theater is only good like five months of the year. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, um, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. um, all, right. all right, Madeline, I feel like every once in a while we bring an author on the podcast that I just feel like Jill and I could talk to for hours and <laughs> hours, and you are definitely one of those people. I Seriously, we didn't have a plan at all for this, and you rolled with the punches with us, so... Thank you so much for coming and, and nerding out about stuff for us, you know, with us for a while. I literally, I could do this all day. <laughs> well, I, it is such a pleasure to talk with you both about all of this stuff. And thank you for the recommendations. I'm going to go check those out immediately. Oh, absolutely. All right, well, man, thank you so much. And for listeners, again, uh, if you haven't somehow yet by this point read her books, go, go get Circe and Song of the Achilles because they're both spectacular. Madeline, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.